Hello! Let me give you a little motto I live my life by. Bang, bang, bang the drum. What? That's not a motto, that's, that's just you saying a bunch of things. It's difficult to name one favorite drummer. Wow, you're amazing, dude. Thanks. I like to play. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. I'm I'm in Atlanta, uh, and I was thinking of you, so I, I, I know I'm getting close to getting back home, and... Um, you know, I'll be working on on Ligeti and uh, and, and um, I'm gonna do some um, uh, overdubs on Three Views of a Secret and uh, with Peter. You know, he's very. <laughs> I'll be candid with you. He's very he's very finicky about stuff. So. He wanted me to change some things on, <laughs> and I said, he wanted me to change some things in the arrangement. I said, you know, Peter, I, I I'm not going to change anything. This is Silvio's arrangement, you know, so uh, this is what it is. I can, I, could, I can change some stuff, but I wanted to talk to you first. So I said, let me, let me talk to Silvio first and then... If he's okay, if he's okay with me changing some things, I'll do it, and then, um... Oh, that, that would be great. That would be great. We mix it with Jimmy Bramley. Okay? All right? And, uh, and, and, uh, I'm waiting, I'm gonna wait until April to, to do Ada and Randy Brecker. Okay? Okay. That's perfect. Mm hmm. Have a have a beautiful day. <laughs> bye 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 bye. He's on a he's in a car in Sicily. He's going to Syracuse, which is a <laughs> little uh, town in Sicily. They're going to dinner. I'm sure the weather's yeah. better there than it will be in. It's our pretty Syracuse. nice there right now. <laughs> he said that's uh, beautiful there. This so. is. Jimmy, this is already a show of firsts, man. Uh, <laughs> we are in the lobby of a hotel. It's our first bassist interview. And we also just had our first transatlantic phone call. <laughs> That's exactly and, right. From Sicily. Well, yeah, and don't let it be lost that this guy's from Sicily. You better be better do a great job on his project, man. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I've been to Sicily many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and one other thing. I don't want this to sneak through the cracks. You mentioned something at the very beginning of the phone call where you said Ligeti? Yes. As in the composer? As Ligeti? In the, we, it, it was a... a all right. Uh, do you want to know a little bit about this guy? Okay. His name is Silvio Amato. He's a, he's a film composer. And he's from Sicily, um, but he's been living in L.A. For, for quite a while doing some stuff for Disney hmm. and some other film companies there. Um, very talented gentleman. 
I was doing some bass overdubs with Jimmy Bramley on some other project, and Jimmy said, hey, I want to play something I just played on uh, and get your opinion. And I said, okay. And so he played me this piece, and it was absolutely beautiful. He said, what do you think? I said, wow. I said, it's really beautiful. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, this guy's doing a record now. He's a film composer, and he's looking for a producer. And he said, if it's okay, can I give him your phone number? And I said, sure. I said, that sounds like some interesting music. So uh, I got a call from Sil Sil this guy Silvio. He was, at that time, in Los Angeles. And we talked on the phone, and then we arranged for a meeting, had a meeting, and the meeting went quite well. He hired me to produce his record. Um, so that was about three months ago. And uh, so the, ma the main thing I do when I first start out is I just get the artist or the band to send me everything they got, uh, even stuff they weren't even considering to record. I just want to hear what, what's going on. And because uh, now I'm, I'm going to be listening to stuff that's not like in the forest, not being able to look through the trees. I'm getting an outside perspective, a fresh pers perspective on what they have. So that's what I did. I listened to about 30 pieces of music of Silvio's and I, I, he, he needed help with direction and focus. So I narrowed it down to eight pieces of music from the 30 pieces. I had another meeting with him, and he, he totally loved what I picked. But he, he said, shouldn't it have more than eight pieces? I said, well, you can, you can make a record with eight pieces of music, but if you want to add up one or two more pieces, then you have nine or ten. That's fine. So he goes, yeah... I, uh, was there anything else there? And I said, no, I, I, you know, I, I really feel like these eight had a direction and a focus. And I said, if, if you're interested, uh, maybe I could recommend maybe doing a cover that would fit with what you have. And he says, oh, he goes, I I'm fine with that. So, so uh, the cover I picked was Three Views of a Secret, which was written by Jaco Pastorius. And... Um, and he flipped out over the song. He didn't know the song. So when I played it for him, he kind of flipped out. And then he did an arrangement of it. And the arrangement's cool. I already told him that I wanted to do some work on it, you know, to manipulate it a little bit. And he was fine with that. And then my idea was to get Peter Erskine to play on it. Uh, I got Gregoire Marais already play on the piece, who's this wonderful harmonica player. And, um, and I was going to get this interesting bass player from Germany to play bass on it, who sounds quite a bit uh, like Jaco Pastorius. His name is Jürgen Ateg, and I've been in touch with him uh, through Facebook, actually. <laughs> Anything works, right? Yeah, so, uh, so that's been my concept for the piece. Um, but when I played it for Peter, he had some questions about the arrangement. So I was, I told Pete to hold hold on to his hat, and I would discuss with Silvio about changing the piece somewhat so that it would be more comfortable for Peter to play on. Because Peter played on the original version, right? Both with Weather Report, mm -hmm. which was really the original version. 
and then later on Jocko's Word of Mouth CD, and even I think they might have played it on this uh, birthday concert that was released by Warner Brothers at one point. Um, so, uh, so that's one reason I was texting him this morning when you arrived. Yeah. And of course, he called me <laughs> yeah. to, to talk. The, the, the other pieces that are going to be on this record, are they kind of like ethereal, ECM-ish kind of sounding things? Kind of, yeah. yeah. They're, they're um, a real uh, serious crossbreed uh, between you know, some classical composition, mm-hmm. which obviously this gentleman has... Uh, a real handle on it's that's that's in his wheelhouse he's a studied piano player and you know his his uh, scores and stuff he's done for film are more classically oriented but as as you and most people know about classical music that's also part of the foundation for jazz music um, you know especially when you listen to people like Messian uh, Prokofiev, um, uh, even Shostakovich or uh, Penderecki. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people pronounce that Penderecki. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, when you listen to that uh, composition, you, you hear all kinds of jazz harmony in there. Um, so that's what Silvio's done, but he's taken it a little more. Uh, closer to the uh, jazz type of a recording because um, there's all these like uh, trio pieces so it's drums, bass and piano with maybe a little orchestration and, I, and I've hired a string bass player to play on a bulk of the material a gentleman named Trey Henry who's a great bass player and uh, Lives in L.A., so I got him. Didn't he play with Tierney? He uh, played. Yeah. He, yeah, he just, in fact, he just produced, uh, I think, one or two pieces on Tierney's new rec, yeah. new recording, and mm-hmm. um, and he does. He uh, he plays with. Is it? There's sometimes two bass players on that gig. Um, uh, Kevin Axt is yeah. the other guy. Uh, both really great. I, I'd like to work with Kevin sometime. That's the thing. I've, I've been producing quite a bit uh, since I left the Yellow Jackets in 2012. So uh, in that period of time, uh, I've gotten to work with a lot of really great string bass players and electric players, too. I, I kind of want to get a little bit of, of information about what you've been doing recently and kind of talk about some of these projects that you are producing. Because sounds like from when we were setting everything up, you're doing probably more producing right now than actual playing. I am. I, I, <clears throat> I made a conscious decision uh, now seven years ago, 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a number of things on the table. <clears throat> I, I'd been in the Yellow Jackets for 32 years, and <clears throat> I just started feeling like, you know, I needed to maybe s- change my focus uh, career-wise. And I was I was grappling with it because, um, I, I, you know, I had a lot of uh, investment in 
yellow jackets. A lot of time. skin in the game, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I love playing with William Kennedy, and he had just come back in the band. After being gone for 10 years. So that was, uh, that was an, an issue. Um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> at the time, I was getting solicited quite a bit to produce. So uh, that became an issue uh, for possibly either taking a hiatus or, or actually <clears throat> uh, leaving the band and focusing on production. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. That's, that's the decision I made. Uh, there was other little, you know, not little things, but other things involved. My family, uh, I was turning 60 at the time. Do the math, folks. <laughs> yeah, starting this, uh, yeah, seven years <laughs> yeah. ago. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, how, how long can I travel? I was traveling a lot uh, with the band, and I already had traveled probably around the world uh, 10 times, you know, so um, it was time for me to do a little re-evaluation and look at what's, what's ahead, and uh, production seemed to make a, a, a lot of sense, and I, you know, I kind of cut my teeth a, a bit with the jackets being in, in that production chair with everyone else, uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, m- mainly Russ Ferrante, but, but the other guys also chimed in and then I had done quite a bit of recording sessions in the late 70s and through the 80s so I got to work with all these really great producers you know and I even started compiling a list of all these producers that I had worked with in that period of time in in my career and I've come to realize that I worked with some really great guys and I learned a lot from each and every one of those people you know just watching them checking out what they did look and some of those guys were engineers so it even went beyond producing in a way i mean like mic selection how to record a cello you know like all different kinds of things like that so production chops are a whole different set of chops compared to playing chops you just don't all of a sudden hang out a shingle one day and say i'm going to be a producer (laughs) well i don't know i take that back here in atlanta a lot a lot of people actually do that (laughs) but no No, there's there's a lot of lot to deal with yeah when you're recording musicians and you're putting together especially let's take for example I'm going to call it, it's, when you talked about the, the uh, Project of Silvio and you got Erskine, that's almost like a chamber jazz kind of a thing exactly. almost, right? That's, that's that a is. whole different set of production chops to somebody going in the studio and you know, laying down beats for a rap album. Exactly, you know? yeah. And so, yeah, it, 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 the combination of deciding that you're going to do that and then leaving arguably one of the most successful fusion groups in the history of the genre, that took a bit of soul searching i feel sure it did and yeah. uh i uh, occasionally i still grapple with that decision but sure but but um uh, all i can say is when i left the yellow jackets in 2012 i had already produced about 90 recordings and since i left uh so in seven years um i've produced almost 80 records so um you know anywhere between 10 and 14 records a year wow so uh you know the focusing on on this 
type of uh, career uh, has in some way uh, really come together and uh, it's given me confidence that I can continue on <laughs> at this point yeah. for as long as I can to, to uh, you know, just keep producing. And, I, and look, I still get to come out on the road for short periods of time like I am right now with uh, Oz and, uh, and Dave Weckl. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that in one second, <laughs> okay. but, but, but I want to I step back and I'm going to ask you to recall the impossible uh, do you remember, by any chance, playing in Knoxville, Tennessee, in 1990 at a little club called Elagaroos with the Yellow Jackets? It rings a bell. You know, you can imagine that in 32 years, I've, I've <laughs> I did quite a few, a few gigs. gigs. Um, <laughs> I can't I, remember the gig I did this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I remember a lot of things, and obviously there's... There's certain gigs that will always stand out. Yeah. Um, now, un- unfortunately, this Knoxville gig doesn't stand out, but I do remember playing in Knoxville. I've, I remember the town. The, so. the, the reason I'm even bringing that up, of course, I was there. I was, in, I was in school up there at that time. That was one of the finest pure listening rooms that existed it doesn't exist any longer but man there was a long lineage of people that played in that in that room tony williams's quintet played in that room freddie hubbard's quintet played in that room yellow jackets played in there on and on and on so it was it was a great little venue man it's it's just too bad it's sorry it's not there yeah yeah well now let's go back and talk about why why you're here uh in atlanta right now and i think it's also worth saying that I'm talking with Jimmy Haslip right now and not the drummer from this group. And it's primarily because nobody knows who this guy is that's, that's playing drums. And I can't, I, can't, <laughs> I can't bring somebody on the show that I have to like do a ton of bio on, you know? Oh, no. And so I can't, couldn't, couldn't bring him on, so that's why I've got Jimmy Haslip on the show. But the reason you, you are here is we have a mutual friend. Right. Who's actually also been on this show? I've known him for thirty some odd years. He was actually—I'm virtually certain—at that same Yellow Jacket show at Elgaroos. That's how we were in school together up there. And then he and I have played thousands of gigs together. But it was Joe Moore who's who yes. brought us together on this. And so you're here with Oz Noise Trio, and you guys are are playing uh, another great little listening room here in town. And if you could just tell everybody kind of what you guys are doing, as far as like with the, if you're doing Oz's music, I'm sure. Sure. Okay, so yeah, we're playing the Velvet Note, and it seats 40 people, so we do two shows a night, so if sold out, we play to 80 people. From what I understand, all the shows are sold out, so, <clears throat> um, and we're, we were um, uh, booked here for th- uh, three nights, mm-hmm. um, so <clears throat> we've already done the first two nights, and uh, all f- four shows have been sold out. It's been uh, really cool. Um, Oz, uh, this is my, I have to say, uh, my, uh, technically my, my fifth tour with, with Oz and my third time playing with Dave Weckl. So I've done three tours now or in the process of doing the third tour with Dave Weckl and I've done two tours with Keith Carlock, um, so Oz has this um, 
really cool music. It's um, some of it's uh, uh, quite complex, and uh, he calls it twisted blues. Um, and he's a phenomenal guitar player. Very interesting, very unique. Uh, uses a lot of very crazy effects, and uh, and he's actually in reality. Uh, what I've gathered over the years of playing with him, he's he's like a rock and roll bebop player, um, which is a crazy uh, thing to put together. But that's really where he's coming from. Uh, he's he's a wonderful musician, and he's a really great band leader. Really um, uh, fun to work with, and and uh, always puts together these cool groupings of people. Um, and some other uh, great drummers and bass players have uh, been involved with them over the years, uh, from like Will Lee to James Genus, mm-hmm. um, uh, Etienne Mbappe, uh, and then uh, of course An- Anton Fig, and uh, and Keith, as I mentioned. Um, uh, so and Dave, obviously. So. Um, we're we're doing this tour. It started on February 28th, and it ends on the 24th in St. Louis. So it's, it's, a, it's a serious little run. And uh, he's got a new record out called uh, Boogaloogaloo. <laughs> and that's what we're out here promoting. Gotcha. Are you guys going to be able to go home any before you get to the end of this tour you just no. going going straight we're through. going straight through with helmets on yes sir <laughs> yes sir well <clears throat> when you do get back i you have already mentioned someone that you're going to be doing some work with who is going to be a future guest on the show so i'm letting the cat out of the bag here right and you've got a group called elemental yes <laughs> right and so you've already mentioned Jimmy Branley, that's mm-hmm. who the drummer is in that group. What's going on with that group right now? Uh, well, everyone's real busy. It, yeah. it, it features, um, well, I guess it features all, all three of us. It's a trio, but um, it's the, the main focus is Otmaro Ruiz, who's the pianist and keyboardist in the trio. Uh, he wrote all the material except for one tune, that he was a fan of that I wrote with Russ Ferrante called yeah. Boomtown, and he did an arrangement of it. Uh, so we recorded that on the Elemental record. That, uh, I guess technically, that came out in January, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jimmy's got a really hectic and busy schedule. He's playing with, um, I think he's been touring with Colin Hay from Men at Work. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, that's a really good gig. Um, and he, and then and Colin's a sweetheart. I got to meet him and I actually uh, did some jamming with him, with Jimmy. Um, and then uh, uh, he also has been touring and recording with Keiko Matsui, um, and that's ongoing. Um, and Otmaro's been uh, is a new keyboard player in uh, Simon Phillips' Protocol. Uh, who uh, they were nominated for a Grammy this year. Um, so he, he's got a busy schedule with Simon. I know Simon's doing a new record now, I think, and uh, there'll be a bunch of touring with that. 
Plus, Atmaro's busy doing a lot of other things. And then, of course, I have my crazy schedule. So there's not a lot on the calendar right now for Elemental, but we, we do have some gigs in July. So, yeah. Well, it's, the, um, it's the kind of thing when you get folks that are that busy, you literally have to take all the schedules together and put them up against the light <laughs> and see if you can see an open spot. <laughs> That's you know? exactly what, what, what we're dealing with. And uh, I know we have a, a rehearsal scheduled and a couple of gigs in, in uh, mid to late July. So that's all we got going right now. Um, we're hoping to do more. Um, so we're, we're, we're psyched about this release. And of course, it came out with Joseph Moore on Blue Canoe Records, uh, who I've been doing a lot of business with over the last couple of years. He's a good dude, man. Yeah. He's a great He's cat. He's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, and and I, I did put out um, uh, late last year, like in September, October, uh, another trio project that uh, was a collaborative project with Scott Kinsey and three drummers, uh, mostly uh, Gergo Borlai. And then uh, we also had Gary Novak and Vinny Kaliuta. But say that last name again. Nobody knows who that guy is either. <laughs> Vinny Kaliuta, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, uh, that came out, uh, like I said, in uh, September, October, and that was a record called Arc Trio. And um, there's, there's literally no gigs on the books right now for that. I did have something... Uh, booked in November, but it fell fell apart. It was a festival in Bonn, Germany, and that that gig fell apart. But I have <clears throat> an idea of a project, a collaborative project that I'm going to produce. Hopefully, uh, the end of this year, maybe the beginning of 2020, um, and it's it's ambitious. I've been producing a, a German composer. I've now produced three records for a gentleman named Michael Schmidt, who was a big band drummer in uh, living in Bremen, Germany. Um, and now he's just uh, basically uh, focused on composing. He's not playing drums. He used to play third base for the Phillies, too. <laughs> I guess, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, except I don't, th I don't think that Michael <laughs> Schmidt lived in yeah. Bremen, Germany. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, uh, I, he's got a project called MSM Schmidt, uh, and it usually involves each of the records I've produced involve uh, anywhere from twenty-five to thirty musicians and all kinds of incredible drummers and I, I play bass on some of it but I also brought in other bass players and <clears throat> uh, the last one we did uh, was about a year ago now called Life and that record had three really good drummers since we're on your show I might as well mention that it was Gary Novak and Dave Wackel uh, actually it was four drummers now and I'm Trying to remember what all the drummers, uh, Virgil Donati, and uh, there was a, a drummer from Germany that was a friend of Michael's, and I can't remember his name right now. But um, so there were four really great drummers on that record, and um, so 
uh, I've been contacted by Michael Schmidt, and he wants to do another project, and he wanted to do something a little different. So I came up with this idea uh, to do a big band record, and I'm I'm not going to tell you who the big band is. It's actually a pretty cool collaboration, but but I will mention that it will involve as the rhythm section the Arc Trio, which is. Oh, nice. um, it's probably going to be Gergo Borlai and Gary Novak. Uh-huh. And uh, if I can get Vinny in there, I'll, I will. This guy, Vinny Kaliuta, that nobody knows. Up and, and comer. And, of course, Scott Kinsey and I. So, um, so that'll be the, the rhythm section. And then there's this big band that I won't mention right now. Um, and then uh, Michael Schmidt, who uh, will be the composer. You've already hinted around at some up-and-coming drummers that you've been playing with. And (laughs) one of the things that was just amazing to me was when we were setting up the interview, um, there was a list that came my way. It, It was, I'm going to say, the most diverse and comprehensive list of some of the greatest drummers that have ever walked the face of the planet that you've worked with. And several of them, well, no, not several, all, uh, almost all of them, I would like to know something about that, but we don't have enough time. But what, what I want there's a lot of guys. But what I would like to do is I have a list of a few people that I want to ask you about. Okay. And essentially, why don't you tell us what kind of a project you worked on them with? Okay. Uh, give us a little bit of musical characteristics about each of these guys. Every, I'll do my best. Yeah, everything. Because I, I realize that some of this stuff is probably a one-off. It might have been a session. It might have been one gig. It might have been that sort. Of, that's completely fine. There's a number of those. Yeah. yeah. And and then I want to finish off when we're doing this list with, with this little thing of call, I'm calling drummer anomalies, like people that we wouldn't normally associate with Jimmy Haslip. So I want to start off with three guys that are, that are buddies of mine. They are, we, we'll call them, Friends of the show, also, because they've been on the show. And also, this first guy I'm going to talk to you about, I, I was actually hanging out with him just a few weeks ago. He was playing at the Velvet Note, and he is the self-proclaimed chairman of the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Advisory Board. Jimmy, you don't realize this. We have an advisory board here on this show of, oh, wow. of different guests. And the, this guy self-proclaimed himself as the chairman, and that is Mr. Joel Rosenblatt. Oh, yeah. Okay. What did you do with Joel? Well, I've done a few things with him. Um, let's see. Uh, I have to dig deep because I have done a number of sessions with him. But I remember two things right now. So that's a good start. Uh-huh. So uh, one thing I remember first, I mentioned MSM Schmidt. Right. So um, I got a call from a keyboard player uh, named Mitch Foreman. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's really... Uh-huh great musician and he calls me and he says hey I'm working on this uh, ambitious project it's a composer from Bremen Germany and he uh, was requesting that um, that maybe you could play bass on like three tunes and I said okay yeah hook me up and so uh, he hooked me up with Michael Schmidt and and uh, we 
figured out all the details and negotiations, and then uh, I ended up getting files for the three songs, um, and they were already recorded, and the drummer on the files was Joel Rosenblatt. So uh, I got to play with y'all from afar uh, <laughs> um, on that project, and we've done a number of things like that, uh, but the other thing I'll bring up is that um, I've been playing a lot for the last 11 years with the Jeff Lorber Fusion. And there was a, a run of dates in Russia <laughs> that I got called in to do with, with Jeff Lorber. And the drummer that ended up on the gig with us was Joel Rosenblatt. <laughs> so I went to Russia... We even played in Siberia, which I'd yeah. never been to before, so that was very interesting. Um, and so we got to play uh, some Jeff Lorber Fusion music together, um, and that was a blast. And I've always been a fan of Joel's. Um, I've known Joel for a long time. I met him probably the, around the early, maybe mid-80s, I, I have to say, uh, when he was playing with Spyro Gyra, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew a bunch of the guys in that band. Of course, I knew uh, Jay Beckenstein, and uh, and at the time, Dave Samuels was playing uh, vibraphone and marimba with that group. So, so there's there's yeah, my little bit of and Joel is a fantastic drummer, really great groove, and we had a blast playing together. So and a college student buddy of Dave Weckl. Isn't that well. right. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this on the way over. I was thinking if Weckle happened to show up here, so I was going to do this little thing. I was going to have Weckle and myself. We were going to call Rosenblatt at the exact same time and see which phone call he answered. <laughs> That's hilarious. So next person. Okay. Tommy Brechtline. Okay. Uh, now that's really interesting because Tom and I both grew up on Long Island. So exactly. Uh, I used to hear his name all the time. We never met while we were growing up on Long Island. But uh, I personally, I can say, I used to hear his name. And there was a, a place that I would play at every once in a while with a bunch of guys. There was, I believe, kind of in a, I'm trying to think, the town. It was either Northport or Centerport was a little town. It was this place called Henry Africa's that I used to play in. And I know Tom used to play there with other people and maybe even some mutual people. I can't remember that clearly, but um, uh, we finally did meet when I moved to Los Angeles and he was living there. So we met and um, I think even before we played together, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I turned him on to a gig. This is really wild. I was in like I want to say Bangor, Maine, with the Yellow Jackets, and we were opening for Jean-Luc Ponty. Yeah. And I, I kind of knew Jean-Luc, because we had seen each other a bunch, and we would say hello. <clears throat> and I also worked with, um, I, I worked with one drummer for sure that he worked with earlier on, <clears throat> uh, Mark Cranny. Um, who I, I saw him originally with 
Jean-Luc Ponty and then later started <clears throat> actually playing with him in a band, Tommy Bolin. So, yeah. um, but uh, I overheard a, a phone call and back then there was no cell phones. He was on a pay phone. And I overheard him talking to somebody about trying to find a drummer to finish the tour. Because I think the drummer on the gig was Rayford Griffin, and he had to split for some reason. And so, I, overhearing that phone call, I walked up to Jean-Luc and I said, man, you're looking for a drummer to finish your tour? And he goes, yes, absolutely. So I said, well, I... I know a couple of guys, if, if, if it's okay, I'll, I'll make a call and see if I can hook you up. And he said, that would be great. So the first guy I called was Tom Breckline on a payphone in Bangor, Maine. And, I, and he answered the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, man, I, I think I got a gig for you with Jean-Luc Ponty. Want me to hook you up? And he said, absolutely. So I gave Jean-Luc Ponty uh, Tom's phone number. He called him, and he got on the gig. <laughs> Great story, man. And yeah. also, what, one quick thing. that Joel Rosenblatt and Tom Breckline are two guys that are just two of the most musical players, man. Great. That you will ever hear tons of chops, but know exactly when and where to use them, man. Just amazing players. So, and I've done a bunch of things with Tom. Uh and I, I can't even remember everything I've done with sure. them. Uh, but uh, one thing we did, we've, we toured Japan with Robin Ford and Neil Larson. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one thing I can remember. And uh, we also did a Neil Larson record, a direct-to-disc okay. recording that we recorded in the lobby of um, uh, Bernie Grunman's Mastering House. <laughs> ah, okay. And that was in, and Robin was in the band, uh, so it was Robin, Neil Larson, Tom Breckline, myself, and then uh, two horn players, which were Gary Meek on saxophone and uh, Lee Thornburg on trumpet. Gotcha. Uh, one more friend of the show, Sonny Emery, <laughs> who lives here. Absolutely, <laughs> little south. He's actually a long way away. He, it's it's in Atlanta, but it's a long way from here. He's on the south side, right? Yeah. Well, so the first time I met Sonny, I believe, if my memory doesn't fail me, uh, was a gig that I I saw that I was subbing on, because um, <clears throat> at the time, this had to have been in the mid '80s. And I was um, not only in the Yellow Jackets, but I was also in Al Jarreau's band, uh, touring extensively all over the place. Um, so I had a connection with that management, and the same management also managed a guy named David Sanborn. So David Sanborn was scheduled to do the Johnny Carson show, and the bass player for some reason, I don't know who that was, um, but he couldn't make that gig. So I got a call from the management, um, and they asked me if I was available, and I said, yeah. And so I ended up playing the Johnny Carson show with David Sanborn and uh, on drums with Sonny Emery. So, <laughs> nice, man. That yeah. was the first time I think I played with them, and then, uh, and then we really didn't 
And that was actually extra special because we did this song that was kind of a hit for David that was written by Michael Cimbello. So Michael Cimbello actually sang the tune and played guitar. And uh, I think after that, we didn't see each other for quite a while. And then I, I can't remember what the next thing was, but I know that I can say that we have now done probably at least 50 or more gigs with the Jeff Lorber Fusion. Nice. Yeah, man. Now, here's one that's a little bit off of everybody's radar. Denny McDermott. Wow, okay. Yeah, that was probably a one a one off and I believe that was that was a weird little project in a good way. Um I was doing a seminar <laughs> uh at Full Sail, which yeah. is a re- like a recording mm-hmm. school um in Fort Lauderdale, no, in Winter Park, Florida. And the owner of the school approached me and asked me to do some recording for him. He was going to be doing a record. He, he was a singer-songwriter. And uh, so we scheduled some dates. And I went in the studio first with Abe Laboriel Jr. And recorded a bunch of tracks with this guy. And then... I left, I went back to L.A., and then he called me and he said he wanted to do some more recording, and uh, Denny McDermott was the drummer. Yeah, for, for people who are not really familiar with Denny McDermott, one of the easiest things that you can listen to him on is he is on the, uh, that Donald Fagan New York Rock and Soul Review, and then he, he also played on a couple of tracks on Kama Kiriad as well. And, and I actually got to know Denny through this bizarre weirdo connection man like like we all get to know other people where he was in atlanta it was man probably 15 years ago and he was doing like a some kind of like an industrial kind of a corporate style gig and they hired me to play <laughs> to play like keyboard percussion and and congas wow. and stuff and so i got to know denny and uh the bassist lincoln uh lincoln goins not lincoln goins lincoln schaefer i think or oh or, yeah there's yeah got to know him they came new down york guys new york yeah. cats man that came down and did that and and so anytime i get a chance to talk about denny he's such a great cat i hadn't talked to him in a long time but but in a marvelous player man boy just a really deep pocket soulful player man. exactly you know and that was a, a fun session and that it was a one-off but funny enough we have the, we have the connection of the mike the uh, uh donald fagan right thing because i did a bunch of things with donald fagan but mostly with um uh i'm trying to think he's one of the drummers on the list but uh is it Lee Leroy uh, Cloudin? Leroy Cloudin. Yeah, yeah. Who's who's also he's on uh, he's on Comicuriad, and he is also on. I am pretty sure Two Against Nature. That Steely I think Dan he record. is. Yeah, yeah. And Sonny what, Emery's on on Two Against Nature also. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I did with Leroy and Donald Fagan was uh, some cues and a song for a, a movie that Donald scored called Bright Lights Big City. Wow. <laughs> that starred Michael J. Fox. Yeah. 
And uh, there was a song that was entitled Century's End. And Leroy and I played on that track. And that, act, that, that song actually ended up on Steely Dan Gold. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, how about Jeff Watts? Jeff Tame Watts. Okay, that's also a one-off. Uh-huh. And that was actually Jeff sitting in with the Yellow Jackets. Whoa. <laughs> uh, I'm having problems wrapping my head around that one. <laughs> and it was... It was what, um, what year was that? Um, let me think about that. That had to have been, I don't know, somewhere around... 2010 2009 in, in some ways that that it, that's more believable than it would have been like you know Earlier. 20 years prior to that yeah so he was in London uh-huh. with Brantford Marsalis and the jackets were playing at Ronnie Scott's it's a famous jazz club in Soho London and they all came down to the gig so not only did he sit in, but so did Joey Calderazzo. Okay. <laughs> they sat yeah. in with, with me and Bob Mincer. And actually, I think Russ stayed on board. So Joey played piano and Russ played like a synth thing. And then uh, it was Bob Mincer and I and Tane. <laughs> nice, and, man. And, and we just played some blues, you know. <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Danny Gottlieb. Danny Gottlieb. Okay, I did um, I did some recording with him, but the, the main memory I have of Danny was doing a live recording at the Baked Potato with a guitarist named Jeff Richman. And we did a trio record for a German record label. Um, and I'm trying to remember the, the title of the record. Um... Wow, it's on the. I could see the cover, but, but it was all Jeff Richmond's music, and Jeff Richmond put this trio together with me and Danny. Um, and I'm. I don't even remember the year. I can't re- recall the actual year. Um, that it was released. I'd have to look that up. Danny's a sweetheart. But Danny's yeah. great. I loved playing with him, and of course, I was a big fan of his from the Pat Metheny group. And uh, that was the one time that we really kind of dug in because we yeah. had to do a whole record together. So that was really a, a fun and cool experience. Danny, I'm also a fan of Mark Egan. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Danny is uh, teaching down at the University of North Florida right now. He's full-time faculty down there. You're not going to find a better fit for that also. He's just one of the most encouraging nicest sweetest guys and i mean i don't know many people that have more pedagogical chops than that guy also so it's like being able to like correctly articulate the way things are supposed to be done so great steve smith okay steve smith now that that was recent i've i hadn't played with steve smith we've known each other for a long long time um and I think we had come close to working together on a few occasions, but it never came to fruition until I got hired uh, to be part of this uh, drum uh, 
it's like a, a drum fantasy camp yeah. uh, in Chicago uh-huh. um, that Dave Weckl has a lot to do with. I guess he he had done it 10 years in a row. But I was invited to be the bass player in a rhythm section that backed up four drummers for that camp. And that was just a couple of years ago. And uh, one of the drummers was Steve Smith. It also had uh, um, Simon Phillips and, uh, boy, <laughs> um, the drummer from Styx, and he's, he's Todd Zuckerman. Zuckerman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Todd Zuckerman, and then the drummer from <laughs> God. Uh, Living Color. Will Calhoun. Yep. All four guys. So I got to play with all four of those guys. Uh, I'd played with Todd before. Yeah. Um, and I'd obviously played with Simon before on a bunch of sessions. But I'd never played with Steve Smith, and I'd never, um, I'd never played with Will Calhoun before. So I got to play with two new guys, and we played a bunch of stuff. I mean, each guy... Uh, had to pl- we had to play four tunes with each guy in concert, and then there were a variety of like seminars and things that we all played and some jam session stuff. Do you recall with Steve, were you doing since it was a rock and roll, like a fantasy or drumming fantasy camp? Were you doing more of like the journey type stuff with Steve, or more of the like vital information type? More stuff? like vital information stuff. In fact, we did a piece of that I think he put together uh, that it featured this uh, conical, uh that the uh, Indian uh, uh, cadence. Um, uh, what would you call that? I guess it's. Uh, Conical is uh, it's an Indian cadence for percussion. Uh, yeah, it's the takite, takite, yeah. takite. Uh, so he had mm-hmm. a piece that uh, he taught us that included uh, that cadence, and it was that was that was a blast playing that. And then uh, some some more like vital information type pieces. Yeah. And Steve's one of those guys. He got bored with like he regular drumming. He had to find something more difficult. <laughs> yeah. <You know. laughs> yeah. He was uh, incredible. Billy Cobham. That also was a, a one-off, and that was, that was an interesting uh, session. It was actually a live performance. So I guess he was booked to play this club in Cologne, Germany, and they didn't have a, uh, they didn't have a bass player. And so I think the promoter was the one responsible for getting me on the gig and uh they called me and said can you come to cologne and do this gig uh with with billy Kovham and some german musicians and i think eric marienthal was also involved and so uh, i said yeah sure it'd be great so i went and did that and I came close to doing some more things with him after that, but uh, schedule-wise, it just didn't work out. So I just did this one live gig that I think was on uh, was broadcasted on German radio or something. Now, there's a little bit of an ulterior motive for me, in particular, asking about Billy Cobham, and and to the best of your abilities, if you can kind of 
bridge the gap between these two. I see a whole, whole, whole lot of influence of Billy Cobham on Will Kennedy. Ah, right. Yes. Did you did you feel similarities when I you did. were playing with those guys? I did. Yeah. Although Will also to me has this Oakland okay. hump to it, you know. Yeah. So uh, I even hear some like uh, you know some serious Oakland funk coming from Will, uh, which I immediately heard the first time I heard him, which was on an Andy Norell record. Um, that you know, I bought the record because I was interested to hear Andy Norell play uh, jazz type music on <laughs> on steel drums. I actually saw him at Elgaroo's in Knoxville too. Well, he's awesome, and I got Andy to actually play on my first solo record, so that was a blast. Yeah. Um, but uh, I bought this record, which Will Kennedy was on, and I was completely blown away with uh with will yeah yeah, yeah. jr robinson jr i did a bunch of recording with in la um can't re- i think i've done some live playing with him around town but mostly studio work uh and a lot of different sessions um uh the first kenny g record <laughs> which yeah. was produced by Jeff Lorber of all people, mm-hmm. uh, because I late, now later on hooked up with Jeff in a big way. I've now produced um, six Jeff Lorber fusion records, and um, in pro in uh, process of working on the seventh. Um, but uh, let's see. So I can mention a few things. So Brenda Russell. Did some Brenda Russell sessions with Jr. Uh, a guy named Michael Ruff, uh, composer, uh, keyboardist, um, and I produced a record with a wonderful uh, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and uh, arranger Vince Mendoza. Uh, it was a project for the VDR Orchestra, which is out of Cologne, Germany. That's their radio orchestra. And it was a whole recording that featured them, but they wanted to have all these famous singers on the recording. So that was part of my job. Um, I was hired to bring in some singers to this project, so I brought in Shaka Khan, uh, Brenda Russell, uh, Gino Vanelli, um, Lori Perry, and uh, Al Jarreau. And there were two rhythm sections. One of the rhythm sections was the Yellow Jackets, mm-hmm. which I brought in. <laughs> And the other rhythm section was myself with um, JR mm-hmm. and Mike Landau and uh, Paul Jackson Jr. and a keyboard player named CJ Vanston. Yeah, yeah. Let's stay in the studio realm for a okay. second. Okay. You got a Jeff Percaro credit on here, too. I did a bunch of sessions with Jeff, yeah. Um, that was... Obviously, an awesome 
experience to, at any point in time to be in the studio with him. And I remember being in the studio with him early on when I had just moved to L.A. And I, I did learn a lot just from checking him out and seeing how he dealt with certain things. It was quite a learning experience just being around him. But an incredible musician and talk about a pocket. I don't think I played with anybody that had quite that kind of a pocket in playing music. Um, there was a certain sound he got when he hit the snare drum that's yeah. that intangible that you can't you can't teach that intangible man you know it, it's just it's that one was of those things and then he also had that real silky right hand man that that it created a certain kind of a lope you know whenever he played and again that's another one of those things man that's an intangible that you just can't teach somebody no. you know when, when you're doing that i mean you can sit there and write the notes on a page all day long but you know there's certain things that are not going to translate i think the he one had it the one guy that came close to that that I did a bunch of sessions with was Carlos Vega. He's on the list. Yeah, <laughs> I played with him a bunch too. And he was, I'd have to say, you know, he was pr pretty close to what Jeff Piccaro was, but there's only one Jeff Piccaro. So they. Now, now that we kind of because we're gonna we're gonna kill three birds with one stone here okay because you mentioned carlos vega and then we just talked about Picard and we talked about robinson those are three what we would call prototypical la studio guys right mm -hmm. the obvious comparisons or the obvious likenesses are well yeah these guys are going to have great sound and gear studio ready gear they're going to be able to just Barry clicks whenever they play that kind of stuff. They did, yeah. Right. So, but now, how would you contrast those three guys, though? Because they do sound very, very different. They do. They do. Um, you know, again, I, I have to put Jeff first on the list because I, I never played with anybody that was anything like him. It was just the way things felt. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost undescribable, you know. It's just a feeling, yeah. You know, um, which, you know, myself being basically self-taught and just having more or less a natural instinct about playing a groove and uh, just feeling where the center of the of the pocket is, um, I I kind of have an instinctual feeling about that. And um, when I played with Jeff, uh, it was unconscious, you know. So with other guys, sometimes you have to do a little more math and, you know, try to experiment a little bit to find that spot, you know, the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay. Because, again, everybody plays differently. Everybody feels things differently. And I, I kind of feel like I've... I've been able to find centers of all these guys I've played yeah. with, the center of their pocket, and then be able to lock in with that. So, um, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back about it all. I'm just, it's my job. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's a, and it's a job that I fulfill joyfully because I love yeah. doing you know, getting that, you know, I love finding that and feeling that. <clears throat> so whatever it takes to get there, I'm happy to do it. 
and I'm, you know, I have no ego about it. I'm just trying to do my job and do it well. But um, so Jeff would have to come be the number one guy. And then I would say, you know, Carlos would be second. And, and, and even I remember a session I did with Carlos that was really tough. And it was a song that I wrote. It was on a Luis Conti record. And I was trying to get him to play something else. But, you know, sometimes you tell something to someone and they have their way of looking at it. And they they may not listen to, <laughs> to your guidance. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. And then I know enough about people skills to, you know, push to a certain extent. And then once you've reached a certain point if they're not doing what you're asking them to do then it's time to release that request (laughs) (laughs) in order to keep a good vibe going because that's the most important part of a session is to keep the vibes positive Mm -hmm. and forthright and moving forward so if it means sacrificing your concept of how to play a certain tune in order to keep this uh, joyful and positive experience of recording, then it's it's worth letting go of of uh, anything that I personally might be looking to do. You know, do you ever doubt yourself in a situation like that when you're producing something? Okay, and then you've got a, you've got the idea, and right. you've got let's say okay, you got Carlos Vega. He was sitting over there, right? Yeah, an incredible okay. drummer, and and his reputation precedes himself. You know, he's an incredible player. Does it ever doubt? Do you ever get the doubt though when you're saying, okay, look, Carlos, I want it to go this way that you might be taking the camera out of Spielberg's hands, <laughs> so to so to speak. You know what I mean? Well, that thought that definitely occurs. <clears throat> but I know that uh, when I wrote this piece of music, I had a certain groove in mind, <clears throat> and I felt that that would have been the right way to approach the, the music. But Carlos had something else in mind, yeah. and he it wasn't budging. So at a certain point, I just let it go, and I let Carlos do, you know, what he was intending to do, and that, and then now. Uh, we finished that recording, and that song that song lived in that certain interpretation of groove. Were you happy with it? And uh, no, <laughs> but but uh, yeah. it's it's still it made it on the record, and uh, and it was a good take. Yeah, and you know technically it was you know it was happening, and what Carlos played was was very interesting. Uh, in fact, I'll take a, um, uh, something that, that an engineer once told me when I asked him about my bass sound because <laughs> I was using some kind of exotic bass, and, and he said, I'll give it an eye for interesting. <laughs> so that's yeah. what I would give that drum track. Gotcha. No. But, but it, it, it accomplished the, the recording of the song. And I had to, you know, step back and just say, okay, this is an interpretation of something I wrote, and, I, and I'll live with it, you know. And, I, and, it, and it is Carlos Vega, so, you know, I'll just sit back and, and finish the recording. And Luis Conti, who was the artist, was happy with it. And that's another thing to take under consideration, is the artist happy? You know, if he's happy, 
then you've accomplished a good thing, mm-hmm. you know. Good. Now, follow my method to my madness here, okay? This next guy I'm going to talk to you about is what a lot of people are considering the modern-day Jeff Porcaro. And as a matter of fact, has his old gig, Shannon Forrest. Yes, and I did play with Shannon on a one-off kind of thing. And that was... And I... I won't be able to recall the artist, but she was a singer uh, out of Las Vegas, and she hired me to produce, I believe it was four songs for a record that she was doing. It's a long story, and I won't go into all the details, but I accepted the gig, and I brought in Jeff Picaro. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jeff Lorber. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Jeff Picaro, so yeah. I brought in Jeff Lorber to co-produce it with me because I felt like I needed a little assistance with this particular uh, grouping of songs. So Jeff and I put together some tracks for her, and then she came and listened to the tracks to make sure we got approval of all the arrangement and all that. And then she said, I love the arrangements, I love the tracks, but I wanna, I wanna do them in Nashville. <laughs> and we were like, wow, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, so well, let's hook this up. And she said, okay. And she goes, I'll fly you and Jeff into Nashville and we're gonna use these musicians that are on, there was another producer and I can't remember his name, but he produced a group, a Christian group called Jars of Clay. Yeah. Um, and it was, so he was the other producer, and he was doing all the tracks with this group of musicians in Nashville. So she, I think, and I understood her reasoning then, because then she, she had kind of a core group of players that would be on the whole record, and that made a lot of sense. So she flew me and Jeff Lorber in, and we got to play with Shannon and some other really great. Uh, is it uh, Doug uh, Doug Moore? Doug Moore is a pedal steel player. There was some great guys. So and Shan- I was impressed with Shannon. He was he was great. He played really great, and we got to play together. We cut the tracks together, and that was awesome. So the. Uh the Nashville studio experience is somewhat different than anywhere else. Yeah. Those folks work quick. Yeah, they're very fast. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, it's very vibrant, you know, as, as compared to anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, because now, like, for instance, in L.A. or New York, it's, you're working usually as overdubs and they're in little small home studios right. and things like that. Where in Nashville, you have the full-on recording studios and, like, uh, all the musicians are there uh, in, in their entirety, you know, from like two keyboard players, a guitar and a, a pedal steel player who plays doubles on mandolin and, uh, you know, lap steel and, and then a drummer. And, you know, so it, it's it's more like uh, what sessions used to be when I was doing them in L.A. in the 80s yeah. and, and 70s for that matter. Yeah. Terry Bozio. Ah, uh, Terry, yeah, I did a bunch of things with Terry, uh, and that was always interesting because his uh, drum set alone was uh, 
something to behold. Um, I did a, uh, I've known Terry a long time, and then I ended up doing some studio work. Um, the one thing I'll really recall, because I did a multiple amount of sessions with him for a Gary Wright record. Yeah. Um, so I cut some tracks with Terry at the Village Recorders, and that was... That was for one record. I did three records for Gary Wright. So one record was just me and Terry overdubbing on some keyboard stuff in... Oh, actually, that was... Okay. That overdub session, that was for a Robbie Robertson record. Yeah. And that never saw the light of day, but we did record like three tunes together for that and that was being produced by Daniel Lanois so that was an interesting mm -hmm. session um, and I also um, I also did some sessions with Terry with Gary producing himself uh, with Steve Ferris on guitar and that was for a Gary Wright record um, and that also included George Harrison. So that was a very interesting yeah. session. Um, those are the two things that I'll, I'll remember the most. And I've done some other little things with him. But really an interesting player, uh, obviously. Um, and uh, I've been a big fan of his from Zappa days to, you know, missing persons. So, yeah. Well, as, while we're on the Zappa topic, let's go ahead and, and talk yeah, about play with Vinny. a bunch of guys. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I play with, you know, uh, uh, including Terry and uh, Ralph Humphrey and um, Chester, Chester Thompson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Vinny. Uh -huh. yeah. So Vinny. Obviously, he's he's on uh, he's arc. on our trio, uh -huh. yeah, uh, and he's on a bunch of Jeff Lorber fusion records that I've produced. Um, he's also on a bunch of uh, this MSM Schmidt stuff that I've produced. Um, he's incredible, and I've known him since the late seventies when he first moved into LA. Uh, I actually got into a band with him. Uh, was a singer named Marilyn Scott. And she's been around. Uh, I did a lot of production for her. I produced eight records for her. Along, Some of them were uh, co-produced with George Duke. And Vinny was on uh, pretty much all of those records. Uh, not Maybe not all of them, but a bunch of those. But we were in a band uh, in the late 70s. I, I believe that's when it was, into the 80s. And the band had Mike Landau, Vinny on drums, Russ Ferrante on keyboards, and myself. And we backed up this singer, Marilyn Scott, who's still around. And I just produced, a, uh, about now two years ago, her uh, my, my ninth production for her. Um, so she's still around, and I'm still working with her. But Vinny... That's when I, when I was in that band, that's when I really locked in with Vinny and we, we were doing sessions together and doing some live playing together. And that, that is, 
I think I've done between him and maybe a couple other guys I've done the most work with and um, incredible now to work talk, with him now talk about intangibles yeah uh, Vinny's a guy who quite honestly he doesn't hear music the same way I no. don't think that most other people hear music we've talked a little bit about how you kind of put Jeff Porcaro as sort of the gold standard as far as pocket as where does that go where, where that is concerned with Vinny, how, how do you feel about his, of course, ability to play pocket, but the ability to just stretch things and just play things that are, I, I mean. Uncanny. T- please tell me he's gotten you as lost as he's gotten me lost from time to time also whenever he plays. I think a couple of times I got, <coughs> I got lost that <laughs> so he threw me, yeah. um, and that's when I learned that, um, that I should just uh, – rely on my own time and not pay attention to I mean subliminally I'm paying attention to what he's playing right. because I got to hear his groove but but I don't focus on it so I kind of stay out in the perimeters <laughs> yeah and I keep my clock going my inner clock going so that no matter what he's doing I'm I know where one is because if you start really focusing yeah. on what he's doing, you won't know where one is eventually, possibly. And that's that's dangerous if you're <clears throat> recording or even on a live gig, you know. Yeah. So you have to really focus on time and really relegate time to your own clock. Sure. And, uh, <clears throat> and then... Uh, with musician years, you can observe what he's doing <laughs> without totally being enthralled. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Gadd. Uh, I gotten to play with him a number of times, and that's been completely awesome because I've been a huge fan of Steve's forever, uh, growing up in New York and actually seeing him play in New York City with ver- various groups like Stuff and... Mm-hmm. But um, I can't remember the first time I got to play with him, but I did. I was producing a Michael Franks record. Uh, I, in fact, I was co-producing a Michael Franks record because I got to produce half of the record and the other half was produced by Chuck Loeb, okay. um, who I really miss. He is a wonderful cat and great guitarist, composer, producer, just a great guy. And uh, so I had this wonderful experience to produce this Michael Franks record along with Chuck Loeb. In fact, we did did this little pact. It was like Chuck said, uh, hey, you could play on one of the tunes I'm producing and I'll play on one of the songs you're producing. And I said, great, that would be awesome. So we did that and it was in New York um, so uh, I opened the door for just having him put together musicians and engineer and studio and I just come in there and do my thing with, with my five tunes you know so I got to play on, on those sessions I got to play mostly with Sean Pelton uh, for the stuff I was doing and then I got to play with uh, Steve on one tune on my sessions and I played with him on one tune on Chuck's sessions 
So uh, that was one incident I got to play with Steve, which was awesome. And then the other one I'll bring up is I produced a Jeff Richmond record. And I recorded all the tracks at Jeff Lorber's studio because I got a, a cool deal over there with Jeff. And Jeff engineered. And uh, Jeff Richmond wanted, uh, wanted to get a, dr- a drummer on the session, but he was unavailable. So he was a little perplexed. And I said, well, let me, let me think about this and let me look around. And I just happened to be talking to uh, this lady that um that i do all my publishing through at one at one time i did it's it's not there anymore but she's with bfm which is big fish music and they have a small label and on the label is the steve gad band so she in conversation with her she she just out of the blue said hey steve gad's gonna be in town and if you have any session work he's looking for (laughs) For some session work while he's in town. And I said, gee, uh, I do have a, a session I need a drummer for. It, would he be available on these certain dates? And she said, I think he is. Why don't you call him? And I did, and he was available. So I got him to play on this entire Jeff Richmond record that uh, was, what's the name of that record? I can't remember now. So I've done now four records for him. Um can't remember the name of the record but he played on on the whole thing and that that had a bunch of great musicians on there and he played incredibly great and uh that's all you need to know yeah and i did (laughs) play with him on a jeff piccaro tribute live performance that dave weckel was on and he can't remember doing it yeah but I was the only bit. There were four bass players involved. Was it four? Yeah. It was Will Lee, mm-hmm. John Pena, Jason Sheff, yeah. and myself. And we, we did like a tag team kind of thing where, you know, one guy would play and then the next guy would go out there. And there were also, I believe, three drummers and a percussionist who also played drums. So that was Alex Acuna, and then it was it was Dave Wackel, and he doesn't remember, <laughs> and it was Steve Gadd mm-hmm. and Joe Picaro. And, and then there were a variety of keyboard players. It was uh, Dave Garfield, David Benoit, uh, Mike, no, I'm sorry, uh, Steve Picaro, and Larry Carlton on guitar, and Mike Miller on guitar. And we did a whole program in this ballroom in this hotel that was a tribute to Jeff Piccaro. And the opening act was Elvin Jones, who played, wow. a, who played like a 30-minute drum solo. Nice, man. <laughs> now, I've got just two or three of, of these, what I'm calling the drummer anomalies, the drummers that we wouldn't think would be playing Jimmy Haslip. And I've got to find out what's going on with okay. these guys. <laughs> Denny Carmesi. Denny Kermasi, yes. Um, so that was also a one-off. And that was a crazy thing. Um, I think that happened in the early 80s. And I got a phone call, and I don't even remember who called me. But the call was, can you fly to San Francisco and play on a, uh, 
a documentary soundtrack that uh, all the music composed by Ronnie Montrose and I said yes <laughs> so I got a plane ticket and I flew to San Francisco and I got put up in a hotel for three days and for at least two days we were in the studio recording all this music composed by Ronnie Montrose who's a great guitarist who's no longer with us but um uh, and the keyboard, the keyboard player, oh gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Well, he was playing with Ronnie Montrose, but he became a, a, a really great producer who's now married to Vonda Shepard and he produced Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> what David Rosenthal, was it? No, I'd have to look it up. Boy, I'm, it's senior moment here you know just remembering all everybody but Denny Carmasi was the drummer Denny Carmasi gave one of the greatest live rock and roll performances I've ever seen in my life back in the mid 80s with heart and it wasn't it wasn't a chops thing at all man it's just he was so dialed in groove wise with what <laughs> they were doing he just played great super just cat. played great man yeah next guy okay one of my personal favorites Bobby Rondinelli <laughs> <laughs> That also was a one-off. And yeah. okay, so I'm I've been playing with uh, over the years on many different projects. In fact, he this guy got me on the gig with Dave Mason and Friends in 1980, and I did a ten and a half month tour with with that band. And the keyboard player was the guy that got me on the gig, and it was a guy named Mark Stein. Okay. Mark Stein was the original organist, keyboardist, uh, lead singer of the Vanilla Fudge. So Mark calls me and says, I want to do a record on Long Island. And I got some musicians and I want you to play bass. And I said, great. So I flew back to New York. And I I think at that time I even stayed at my my parents' house, which was in Huntington, Long Island. Mm -hmm. And uh, the drummer was... uh, Bobby Bondanelli uh, and first time I played with him and and I think he was still playing with Blue Oyster Cult at the time either that or Rainbow yeah yeah I think it was uh-huh. Blue Oyster he was doing yeah and um, I can't remember the guitar player's name but he was on tour with Cindy Lauper and a uh, session player who was doing a lot of jingles and stuff in New York. So we went into this little studio in Manhasset, Long Island, mm-hmm. and cut this whole record that was, um, uh, that I remember the title was called White Magic, and had a big picture of a white leopard or something, or, or a tiger on the cover, and it was a Mark Stein solo record. Sounds very 80s, man. Yeah. And it was rock and roll, and it was cool. But Bobby Rondinelli is a drummer that has come up on this podcast about 15 different times. He's Man, I really like some of that stuff he did back with Rainbow and Blue Oyster Cult. Yep. Also, I think he played for a, just a minute with Twisted Sister. <laughs> he probably did. And he's, man, yeah. great drummer. Yeah, and he I, is. I love really playing is. with him. Yeah. So. Tommy Aldridge. Wow, okay. Tommy Aldridge. I'm just... That had to have been a session, and I can't even remember what that was, but um, I'd have to really think about that one. 
Man, let me tell you, you've already answered about 20 of these. You get a pass on that one. <laughs> okay. What about Vinny Apice? Vinny Apice, uh, I was introduced to by his older brother, Carmine Apice, who was responsible for getting me to Los Angeles. And um, so I had, I had this little band with this guitar player named Phil Brown, who I later produced, I did a, a tribute to Jimi Hendrix with, and uh, it was just uh, Phil Brown, myself, and Gary Novak, and that's a record called The Jimmy Project. But when we, and we were playing together, Phil and I were playing together in New Orleans, and we met Carmine and jammed with him, and then he asked us to come to LA, which we did. And we thought we were going to get to play with him, but he was already signed to a, a, con, a, contra, a contract with um, a group called KGB. And so he couldn't really play with us, so he brought Vinny out from New York to play with us, and we had a little band together. We rehearsed, we did some showcases, and... I think I did some sessions with them around that time. In fact, I ended up back in New York with Vinny, and we played on a bunch of tracks for a guy named Ray Gomez, guitar player, which I did uh, most of that record, uh, and the tracks were either with Vinny Apice, and we also did some tracks with Narda Michael Walton. <laughs> yeah. That's a little bit different yeah. there, huh? Yeah. As you can tell, I have a certain affinity for like New York hard rock drummers, man. I, there's, there's an intangible in those guys, man, that I like a lot. And we're going to finish up with one of those guys also, Eric Carr. Eric Carr was a one-off, and that was a crazy session that was for... A Kiss record. Yeah. <laughs> so Please tell me that Gene and Paul were there. They had They to be. were there. <laughs> and it was uh, and it was before they officially uh, took away their makeup. So okay. uh, but of course they weren't wearing their makeup on the sessions. Um, uh, but I knew the producer and the producer called me up in my apartment at the time. Uh, I was living in uh, Los Feliz, California, and I was in my apartment, and the phone rang, and it was this guy, Michael J. Jackson, called in, and uh, I picked up the phone, and he said, I, what are you doing, like, right now? <laughs> and it was, like, 10 o'clock at night, and I said, well, I'm just kind of watching a TV show, and he said, can you gather up some guitars and come down to the record plant? <laughs> and I'll explain when you get here. Okay. And I said, okay. I figured this this will be interesting. So I put a couple of bases in my Volkswagen and shot down to the record plant. I got there, and there he was at the front door waiting for me. It was around quarter of 11. And he goes, um, okay, so this is for a Kiss record. We can't give you credit, but we'll take care of you. And you just got to come in here and play bass on a bunch of tunes because I'm on a deadline. And uh, we got to get this thing done and Gene won't play. <laughs> now, he, he gave me a reason why. And uh, Gene swears that that was not the reason why. So I won't even go into that. But 
I walked into the studio and Eric Carr was playing on a track. Okay. Um, laying down drums. So I got to meet him. And Eric Carr was on that entire record. It was a record called Creatures of the Night. So there was Gene, and he sat in front of me while I played on like seven tunes. Did you play on I Love It Loud? I don't think I played on that, but I, oh. I, I remember playing yeah. on Danger. Uh-huh. And they were, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I remember Danger because I just love the title of that yeah. track. Yeah. And in fact, on that tune, he, he kept saying I, I needed to play harder. So I ended Bigger up. Bigger pick. I, end, I had no pick, so I used a quarter. That's Billy and Gibbons I played, style. I played the whole track with a, with a, a quarter, on, and he was fine with that. So uh, that was quite an experience. I think I left the studio at 7.30 in the morning. The sun was up, and I just slept back to my house and crashed for the rest of the day, and that was my experience. It's so. worth it for the story, isn't uh, it? You yeah. Know? Yeah. And Eric Carr was cool, and uh, I think while I was in there recording, uh, Vinnie Vincent was in another room c- cutting guitars. Yeah, yeah. Charlie Watts. Okay, <laughs> Charlie Watts. Again, that was a one-off, uh, but it was a really fun project. So I did a lot of things and became friends with Andy Johns. Uh, producer engineer so I got a call from Andy at one point and he said I uh, uh, want you to play on this record I'm producing and I'll give you the address and we need you for like four days and I said okay uh, so I drove to the address and it was a uh, Ronnie Wood record called okay. 1234 so I played on pretty much all that. Ronnie, I obviously played bass on some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I must have played on six or seven tunes, and the drummer was Charlie Watts. Did you cut simultaneously with him? Live. Live in a, in a garage at a house in Mandeville Canyon that they converted into a recording studio. And uh, the band, it was a whole band. Uh, so it was... Um, uh, it was uh, Ian McLaglin on organ, and it was uh, their piano player who played on all the, these incredible songs. I can't, uh, wonderful guy, and he and uh, I may, uh, mainly hung out with him because. Are, are you talking about that played with the Stones? Yeah, Chuck Levell. No, it was before, before Chuck. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was before him. He was British. Okay, and. Uh, again, a senior moment, but he was incredible, and I mostly hung with him because he was not allowed to drink, and I was a vegan at the time, so <laughs> <laughs> I was showing up with my fresh-squeezed orange juice yeah. and trail mix, and these other guys were drinking other kinds of beverages, <laughs> and uh, so it was Ronnie on guitar, um, and uh, piano player was this gentleman, wonderful guy. And Ian, who also passed away just fairly recently, I guess, uh, and Charlie, which was a treat because I, I got to sit right next to him and just play these tunes with him. 
so that was quite an quite a, a, a four day experience to hang with those guys. I'm gonna make an educated guess and say that there was no click on those. Sessions. No click, <laughs> no click at all. Yeah. In fact, I'll privately tell you a funny story about it, but I. Yeah. I I don't feel comfortable telling well, you this right here. Well, we hadn't even started the interview yet. Jimmy, so. <laughs> <laughs> we only been going for an hour and a half. Well, well, listen, man. That information about those drummers was absolutely invaluable, man. Thank, thank you very much for that. But I can't let you get out of here okay. until we do. There's a time-honored tradition that we have on this show. Okay. I don't know if Joe told you anything about this, but no. we do this thing at the very end of the interviews. And let me tell you, you're in good company because Rosenblatt's done this, Brackline's done this, Sonny's done this. Everybody who's been on the show's done this. It's been a good sport. And what we call it, we call it the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast, Rorschach Test. Okay. And it's, a, it's, it's basically a psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> and what we do... I is, may not pass this one. Well, let me tell you, you've already done okay because you, you passed the first psychiatric test because the very first test was I asked you what microphone you wanted and you just, you know, you didn't diva out on me, man. You said, whatever. Yeah. And I gave you the RE, I gave you RE20. It's so. awesome. That's a good mic. So what this is, is it's a series of 20 short questions. And okay. they're all across the board, man. Some have nothing to do with music. It's just fun stuff. Okay. I don't want you to think about this. I just want you to blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. You got it. I'm ready, ready? To go. I'm ready to go. Here we go. Live. In-ear monitors or wedges? Wedges. What's your favorite country to tour? Uh... Anywhere in Scandinavia, so that's broader than, than one, one country. I'm going to say Finland. Okay. I, I have been, I love yeah. Finland. You're originally from New York, but you live in L.A. Lived in L.A. longer probably now than you have in New York, I, right? Yeah, I have, now, yeah. Here's the important question. New York sports teams or L.A. sports teams? New York sports teams. Giants or Jets? Jets. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Mets, <laughs> Mets or Yankees? Yeah, either one is you have to be sorry. <laughs> uh, so Mets or Yankees? Uh, Yankees. Islanders or Rangers? Uh, Rangers. All right. All right. Co <laughs> coffee or tea? Coffee. Just had some before we got in here, yeah. right? Favorite potato at the baked potato? Oh, uh, cheese and broccoli. Gotcha. Tour bus bunk, top, middle, or bottom? Uh, middle. Gotcha. That's, that's far and away the most popular yeah. answer. <laughs> I, I'm the bottom bunk guy. I, I, don't, I like the bottom bunk. I've done the bottom uh, yeah. out of, you know, the other ones were taken. So yeah. Worst traffic, New York or L.A.? L.A. When you set up live... Do you like to be on the ride cymbal side of the drummer or hi-hat side? Hi-hat. When you play live, do you prefer no click or with a click? Well, uh, I prefer no click, but, but if the click's in there, that's fine. Got it. Social media, love it or hate it? Uh, I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> PC or Mac? Mac. Text or phone call? Uh, I like phone calls. What's your preferred recording software? Well, I, I go with Pro Tools because uh, that's most of the guys I work with 
that's their that's their game. Sure, industry standard. Mm. I get it. L.A. question: Ralphs or Safeway? <laughs> well, uh, I have a, um, a a deal with Ralphs. I got one of these uh, s- super saver kind of uh, yeah. things. Like, so I go to Ralphs, but I but I do prefer Irwan. Oh, okay. Got, got, okay. Well, here's your Ralph's tip of the day. When you're in the South and in the, I guess, South and East, that Ralph's card will work at a Kroger's. Oh. Yes. So Kroger's. I'll yeah. go with Kroger's. Go with Kroger when you're mm-hmm. here. Nam Show. Love it or is it a necessary evil? Uh, at this point in time okay. in my life, a necessary <laughs> evil. <laughs> Elvin or Tony? That's a really tough one. I got a tougher one. Uh, I'll 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 go with Tony, but uh, you know, Elvin. It could go either way. Yeah. Favorite TV show. Uh, favorite TV show. Wow. Uh, I don't watch a lot of normal TV, so um, uh, let me. think a little bit about that. you want to come back to that one uh yeah <laughs> let me think about that because uh, there's a couple of things i could say because uh, i i mostly watch like doc, like uh, uh dramatic series like this um uh this thing that that was is it uh, on like amazon prime or yeah it's it's netflix netflix so yeah so Netflix, is that an answer? No. We'll go, let's, okay. we'll go with it. And if you think of something, we'll go back and, and we'll, okay. we'll punch it back in. We'll edit it back into the mix. How's I'll that? even, <laughs> I, I, can, I can name a, an old show that I really got into that's not even on it. Boston Legal. Okay. Good. I, I like it. Paul Chambers or Ray Brown? Paul Chambers. Okay. What's your favorite hobby outside of music? Watching sports. Okay. Final question. And you can take a moment on this one. Okay. Try not to hurt anybody's feelings. <laughs> of all the drummers you've played with, who has the best sounding kit? You got to throw in cymbals and everything, man. Yeah. Okay. I, I could probably name like 30 guys, but I'm going to go with Will Kennedy. Nice. I'm writing these answers down at the same okay, time. Okay, sure. Jimmy, fantastic, man. We just did an hour and 40 minutes. Awesome. We could have gone more. <laughs> we could, oh, let me tell you, we could certainly go longer. Anything There's else? A lot, a lot. Yeah. There's anything a else you want to, you, you have any other promotion, plug dates? Anything else you want to uh, um, say? Um, well, yeah, nothing in mind now. I know I, I'm going to be doing some touring with Jeff Lorber Fusion coming up. Um, and it looks like I'm going to be doing some collaborative touring with Jeff Lorber and Mike Stern together. Mm. And then uh, I'm, I have some more Oz stuff, but that's over in Europe. And I think that's going to be with Dennis Chambers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another guy that nobody on this show's ever heard of. So, yeah. Well, let me tell you, if you think of anything else, Jimmy, before this show goes live, you just let me know. We'll throw it in the show notes. So everybody that's listening, make sure you check the show notes. We're going to send you over to Jimmy's website. We'll send you over to his social media so you can pick up all the stuff that he's been talking about. Man, it's been a pleasure, Jimmy. 
Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Phil. Oh, absolutely, man. All right, how about that Jimmy Haslip? Man, that was a great time, let me tell you. I was a little bit hesitant at first when we were going to do it in the lobby of that hotel because it was really busy and there were a lot of stuff going on, which, of course, you can hear, but that somewhat added to the ambience and kind of the vibe of the entire thing. Plus, it didn't hinder Jimmy at all. He was on 10 right from the get-go, so it was a, a really good time. Now, before I forget, what you're hearing underneath me speaking right now is a track that Jimmy recorded that's on the Blue Canoe label that's from his group called Elemental featuring Jimmy Branley, and this is a tune that Jimmy Haslip wrote called Boomtown. So I'll pot that up a little bit toward the end so you can hear some more, but head over to Blue Canoe Records so you can see and purchase that album. Uh, One other thing, check the show notes before you jettison this episode because I'm going to include some links that are going to take you over to Haslip's social media so you can check out what he's doing. You can go see him play live. It's great to listen to these guys on records, but these days we make our money playing live, so make sure you go see Jimmy the next time he's close to you. Thanks for listening. Before we get out of here, let's get these perfunctories out of the way. Make sure you go over to drummersweeklygroovecast.com. There you can interact with us. Everything that's DWG, you can listen to all of our episodes. You can email us through our email form. You can manage your social media there. You can also check out our videos. And then when you're done with that, head over to our social media. We're on Facebook. We're Drummers Weekly Groovecast. At Twitter, we are at DW Groovecast. And then Instagram, we are Drummers Weekly Groovecast. If you're an Apple user, the next time you're in iTunes, take just a moment. Go over to our page, the Drummers Weekly Groovecast podcast homepage inside of iTunes, and leave us a short review. It really helps us. People who are looking for our type of content, when they do searches and look for these drumming podcasts and music podcasts, we rank a little bit higher. You guys have been great doing that so far. Anytime you can do that, just click those stars. Give us a five-star rating. We'd greatly appreciate it. All right. I think that's going to do it for now. We will see you again next Monday. On behalf of Jimmy Haslip, this is Phil. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.